I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty-gritty, so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... The dark and bloody history of Chiquita Banana. What is Chiquita Banana? It's a multinational corporation founded in 1899 that literally created the banana market across the globe and transformed bananas from an obscure tropical fruit cheaply produced in Central America and a few other island nations as a thing that you'd eat if you were too poor to afford anything better to the most popular fruit in the richest country on the planet. They revolutionized the shipping industry to allow transport of perishable goods across vast oceans and have gone on to become the number one banana supplier globally. It also has a ghoulish and bloody history of corporate colonialism funding Central American military coups, using its massive wealth to essentially buy up third world countries and force their citizens into a corporate form of indentured servitude, bankrolling terrorist groups, and having a direct hand in multiple genocides. Act 1. No, this is not a joke episode. This is actually real. How are the atrocities of the world allowed to happen? How do the perpetrators get away with it, seemingly immune to the repercussions that the tightly gift-wrapped three-act structures of movies have trained us to emotionally assume will come to all the bad guys in the end? And how do these things continue to happen, time and time again, the world seemingly never learning from its historical mistakes, but instead learning to conceal them better, pretend they don't exist better, politely avoid the subject better, shield our eyes better? The only thing we seem to learn is how to compartmentalize the tentative comfort of our day-to-day lives away from the bristling, unseen crimson malignancy that oozes just behind the curtain, making it all possible, the mundanity of our lives serving as a proxy for the truly draconian nature of how most things actually are. You've heard it a million times. The phone in your pocket was built by a slave child in a sweatshop somewhere. The USA isn't actually the greatest country in the world, but a global mechanism of colonialism. The Team America World Police of it all. We've heard and parroted these tropes over and over, but they mean nothing. At this point, criticizing and being self-aware about the dark truth that makes our lives possible is just an aesthetic and an emotional facade that we can wear to help us feel a little bit better about openly benefiting from it. Millions of people tweeting the same jab about iPhones being built by child slave labor from their iPhones. The answer to why these things continue to happen and we never collectively learn or do anything about it is multifaceted, incredibly complex, and always evolving. At one point, these things happened because the powers that be had zero inhibitions about them and the lesser social classes were merely subservient to it all. Then, once the average person gained a bit more social consciousness, or at least developed a palate where these atrocities just didn't sit well on the tongue, and even the faintest of dissenting voices, the perpetrators could just simply hide the worst of it from the public and lie about the rest. When that stopped working, the perpetrators turned to cashing in their massive wealth for wide-scale propaganda campaigns to poison the minds of the masses against their targets and victims. It's okay that we funded that genocide of millions of people, because they were all communists. Once the stranglehold that American newspapers had over public consciousness began to slip, and naked propaganda became less effective to control the narrative, the perpetrators just evolved into their next phase. The age of television, corporate branding, Mickey Mouse, Swanson TV dinners, and a loving spoonful of feel-good pop culture to make it all better. If we can't openly lie to people about things or trick them into believing untruths anymore, 
We can instead just shellac over the entire thing with a thick, glossy sheen of saccharine consumerism. Don't pay attention to that stuff going on over there. You have too much McDonald's to eat, too many Pokemon to catch, too much Big Bang Theory to watch. It hurts. <laughs> it hurts. Yeah, Big Bang Theory fucking sucks. <laughs> yeah, at least if you're going to placate me with artificially created three camera, would-be fucking doofy nerds getting hot girlfriends, make it good. Fuck you, Chuck Lorre, whatever the shit that guy's name is. And that's indeed his name. Composer of the Ninja Turtles theme song. Yeah, well, never mind. Not totally fuck you then. Just like, <laughs> just marginally fuck you. Finally, in the last five to ten years, we've seen even the spell of consumerism start to wear off. People have started to realize that things are not okay. That we can't just bury our heads in our corporate feed bags anymore and ignore what's going on. The literacy of social consciousness has started to spread wider. Teenage girls are starting to drink from metal straws to save the turtles, and kids on TikTok have started to decry fascism. But in reality, it's just the next phase in the perpetrator smokescreen. They saw the mask slipping on their previous grift and seized the opportunity to weaponize our collective awakening for their own purposes. Social consciousness became just another trend co-opted by corporations. Our country's attempt to reckon with its own atrocities just became a series of hashtags and ad campaigns created by elites to trick us into thinking we were making a difference while we continue to fill their pockets and do nothing about their crimes. In fact, it might be the most effective method of control yet, as we all have become lulled into the smug satisfaction that we are agents of change while we continue to do nothing. We sit and tweet rants against fascism on the privately controlled social platforms of oligarchs to feed their algorithms and boost their engagement so they can sell ad impressions against it. We post self-assured agitprop on TikTok, an app created and owned by an authoritarian government specifically to collect our data. We buy ally safety pins and pussy hats, share articles that preach to our choirs, dunk on our enemies in comment sections, and curl up in our warm beds at night full of all the dopamine we crave while the world outside our gated communities continues to burn. You may have tweeted hashtag ACAB earlier today, but when's the last time you've eaten a Chiquita banana? And do you know what had to happen for it to get to you? In that regard, Dave might be the wokest person on the planet. <laughs> Look, man, I'm no better than anybody else. Just because I literally don't know what a Chiquita is doesn't mean that I've never eaten one. Everyone's like, Chiquita is literally the most well-known banana in history. It's the most ubiquitous. It's the fucking Disney of banana. And you're just like, I just don't support genocide. That's why I don't know about it. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like, nah, man, this was not my lack of interest in the branding of the fruit I eat or just complete non-awareness that is even a thing. I just hate indentured servitude, slave labor driven workforces that overthrow governments and topple democracies. Why do you know about Chiquita? <laughs> yeah, why do you support that? In the late 1800s, if you had gone to a store and asked for a banana, they'd have cursed you out Yosemite Sam style and shot you in the face. They were unheard of out of the Central American countries where they originated and nobody in the Western world ate them. That all changed in 1871 when miner Cooper Keith, an American businessman and Texas cattle raiser, along with his associates, secured a contract to build a 100-mile railroad in Costa Rica from the capital of San Jose to what was to become the Caribbean port of Limon. So his Christian name is Minor, M-I-N-O-R? Yeah, I really double-checked that and looked around because I it was one of those things where it just hits your ear in such a way where you just can't process the information. You're just like, that's not a thing. You're just confused. I was like looking around. And yeah, his name was Minor Cooper Keith. 
That was his name. He was born and his son was just like, he's screaming. It's not in a major key. It's in a minor key. Yeah. Or his parents just really wanted to like law of attraction, put it out there that they had a very specific idea of what they wanted him to do for a living. So they were just like in the style of the adventures of Tintin. We're just going to name him the thing that he does. But then he did become a miner, so he disappointed them. The construction of that railroad proved extraordinarily challenging due to inadequate financing compounded by the rugged terrain, thick jungle, torrential rains, and prevalence of malaria, yellow fever, dysentery, and other tropical diseases. As far as 4,000 people, including Keith's three brothers, died during the construction of the first 25 miles of track, Keith was forced to hire foreign laborers. R.I.P. Cowboy Cooper Keith fucking fur trapper Cooper Keith and life coach Cooper Keith. <laughs> RIP life coach Cooper Keith. You're my favorite, man. I loved the way that you helped people over Zoom in 1871 get their shit together. By 1882, the Costa Rican government had defaulted on its payments to Keith and could no longer meet its obligations to the London banks from which it had borrowed to pay for the railroad. Keith managed to raise 1.2 million pounds himself from the banks and from private investors and negotiated a reduction of the interest on the money previously lent to Costa Rica from 7% to 2.5%. In exchange, the government of President Prospero Fernandez Ariamuno gave Keith 800,000 acres of tax-free land along the railroad, plus a 99-year lease on the operation of the train route. Already at this point, even before we've gotten into anything, it's already just somebody scheming and grifting and taking advantage of financial power structures to just get a bunch of stuff from economically compromised people. During the construction, Keith started planting banana roots on his newly acquired land along the route of the railroad, at the time mostly as a means of feeding the workers as they arrived at certain checkpoints along the way. However, in 1890, when the railroad construction was completed, Nobody actually wanted to use it, and the flow of passengers and cargo wasn't enough to pay back his debt to the banks for the financing of the railroad's construction. However, he had another idea. What if he were to use the railroad to ship the bananas that he was growing and try to sell them? Around the same time, in 1870, two American men, Lorenzo Baker and Andrew Preston. Oh my god, this isn't real. It's This isn't real. The guys who... Well, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but the guys who created Chiquita Banana are somebody named Baker and Andrew P. How is this possible? This doesn't seem real. How is this possible? The duo that created Chiquita Banana is Lorenzo Baker and Andrew P. <laughs> the two guys that Chiquita Banana was created by have basically our same names yes <laughs> are there photos of them is it just like you and me time displaced is it like a short guy with glasses and a top hat and like a tall dude i didn't even think about looking up i definitely already i was like oh my god i can't believe this and i can't wait to talk about this but i didn't think about looking up images of them this is andrew preston and then this is lorenzo baker he kind of kind of look looks like me he kind of looks like you i yeah he what does the fuck is that is it crazy to think i wonder if we're related you could be is that is that weird he looks like me dude yeah he resembles you Andrew Preston doesn't look anything like me, but of course, we don't even have the la same last name, so there's no stake there. Bro, okay, so let's start with the old Dirty Bakes. He, what does he look like? I'm going to say this guy looks like the third rejected Abraham Lincoln auditioner at the community theater play. Lorenzo Baker looks like Dave Baker, 
just went down on Bigfoot after he got finished shaving. Lorenzo Baker looks like someone who constantly thinks about that one time in high school and was like, man, that was a great time. Lorenzo Baker looks like racism up top, bear baiting down bottom. <laughs> Lorenzo Baker looks like... This is so trippy to me because he actually looks... This is so trippy to me. Like, I'm a little weird... Like, I'm a little weirded out. Like, what the fuck? Hey, man, you said you had Spanish ancestry? No, that's that doesn't work because he's not from... Because I was going to say all these Central American companies were colonialized by Spain. Oh, yeah, but he's an American. Yeah, he's not from there. He's from... I thought I had something for a second. Man, that is weird to me. It's really weird. I wonder... I'm going to ask my parents they're not gonna know but i'm gonna ask my parents when we're done recording you don't know that we're like the heirs to the chiquita banana <laughs> like you've never heard of chiquita banana you were raised on them for the first five years of your life we just we had a lifetime supply of chiquita banana and that's all we li- fed you that's why you're so tiny <laughs> <laughs> you didn't get any you didn't get any nutrients other than potassium yeah <laughs> Wow, I'm I'm genuinely a little freaked out. That is so weird. What the fuck? I can't even I can't even really continue with the bit. A- Andrew Preston looks like somebody who's a little too into uh Teddy Roosevelt. Like he's got like Teddy Roosevelt pictures hanging in his house. He's he's got he's read a bunch of he writes historical fiction about the Rough Riders. Yeah, for sure. Well, there you go. Lorenzo Baker and Andrew Preston. Man, that is so weird. Lorenzo Baker and Andrew Preston traveled to Jamaica and bought 160 bunches of bananas, then went back to New Jersey and sold them through Preston's produce distribution brokerage. This turned out to be profitable. And by 1885, the same year that Buford Mad Dog Tannen shot and killed Dr. Emmett Brown before Marty McFly traveled back in time to save him, they had formed the Boston Fruit Company. In 1899, after the two companies had been slowly growing, in order to mitigate the risks that are common in the global fruit trade, they merged together to become the United Fruit Company. Old Dirty Grandpa Baker and Andrew P., they were sort of the business distribution end. So they really had the really like fully formed company that had the capabilities of shipping and distributing and delivering fruits to storefronts and things like that. And Minor Cooper Keith... He was just the guy who had built this infrastructure almost by accident to grow, harvest, and move bananas. I mean, I know we're moving on, and I'm just going to quietly simmer here in the corner, but I just can't believe that it's... (laughs) I'm just shocked that they have our names. This is either a very elaborate prank or history is very strange. Great-great-grandpa Lorenzo. The United Fruit Company would later fully rebrand themselves as Chiquita Brands International after its flagship product, Chiquita Banana, but we'll get to that later. The company needed a better and more consistent way to export their bananas to the U.S., and so shortly after the merger, they launched a shipping line of the world's first refrigerated cargo freighters, painted all white to reflect as much of the heat from the sun as possible called the Great White Fleet. It was one of the most efficient and technologically advanced methods of exporting food overseas at the time. I'm just going to say it right here. Racist. Racist. Great White Fleet? That's not for cooling. Oh, listen to the next line I'm about to read. 
It was also a powerful visual metaphor for the Western colonialism that would be done on behalf of the company for decades to come. I just texted my mom, hey, do you know if we're related to Lorenzo Baker, the founder of Chiquita Banana? And she just texts back, I seriously doubt it. She's keeping a dark family secret from you where she's been like shunned from the family. Like as soon as like she said, I seriously doubt it. And then she was just she just ran into a closet and threw it open and took out a big chest and then took it into her backyard and burned it. Yeah, there's a secret basement in our house that's just filled with bananas. It would still be a while before bananas caught on in the States, but United Fruit's massive investment into this industry, as well as their proof of concept of refrigerated shipping, caused other companies to pop up in search of a piece of the banana cream pie. This largely involved an American corporation identifying a massively impoverished Central American country with a destabilized and corrupt government, along with the right environmental conditions for banana growth, moving in and taking over the place to essentially become their personal banana production machine. This created what is known as the Banana Republics. Holy shit. That's where the term Banana Republic comes from? I had no idea. I actually, sh- I forgot. I, I the, the, I'm showing the cracks of like, oh, I should have researched this and I just forgot to. But I meant to research why the store is called Banana Republic. Because the term Banana Republic is, it is representative of a very dark, negative thing. I wasn't even thinking of the store. I was just thinking of the pejorative term that is generally used for an artificially propped up democratic state that the U.S. produces specifically a lot during the, the Cold War. Oh, just just the term. Just the term. Yeah, I was I'm surprised. It makes sense. That's where it comes from. I just had never thought. I just assumed that Banana Republic was just like you're just calling it a banana because a banana is a goofy shape. And it's you're just like, oh, it's a fucking dumb, not real republic. It's a banana republic. But the fact that it's a lineage from actual industrial colonialism fueled by a capitalistic engine of infinite growth unchecked that gobbles up any culture that's not the one in power is it makes so much more sense and is understandable. It's just interesting to know that's that it literally that the term Banana Republic comes from Chiquita Bananas, basically. That's, again, crazy! What the fuck? Yeah, the, the term was coined uh, by O. Henry in an essay in 1904, and it was directly referencing Honduras and some of these other Central American companies that had been taken over and propped up by specifically the United Fruit Company, a.k.a. Chiquita Banana. And then it became that general term, but it was directly referencing this. And in term, and I just want to look this up really quick because I forgot to do this, but I wanted to know why that clothing chain named themselves after that. Because they're a dark insurgent entity in our culture, slowly corroding us from the inside. Yes, but I, I highly doubt that they had that level of self-awareness. That's what they want you to think. Okay, this is why. Because the chain was started as a military surplus store selling safari clothing. Still, that's even worse. Yeah, it is. It is worse. It's like a joke at the expense of that. But at least it makes more sense than like it was a hip clothing brand that just named themselves that very negative thing. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to start a clothing line. We're going to have stores and really trendy like shopping mall outlets in suburban America. And it's going to be called the despotic overthrowing of legitimately elected officials. How about that? Is that cool? Is that too much of a mouthful? How about just uh, how about just dictators only? Oh, my God. What are you wearing? That looks so good on you. Oh, I just got all of my outfit from Armenian genocide. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Oh my god. It's in the mall. It's right next to it's right next to Holocaust.
the stores in the mall are just named after like horrific mass atrocities of history. Oh, what's? Oh man, I really love that dress. Where'd you get it? Oh, I got it at Stalin's Secret. I mean, that's honestly this joke is it's that's not even a joke. That could just be all of these stores. Uh, that's just American culture just co-opting things and taking them out of context and everything just having these horrible histories that it, on its surface you're just like, "Oh, this is just a thing." And then you learn more about it and you're like, "What the fuck?" Yeah, I can't wait to pick up my new Duterte Cinematic Universe DVD. I'm really excited for the new Origins film where it tells the heroic rise of the young idealistic as he fights drug dealers in the streets in the Charles Bronson exploitation movie. I can't wait for that. Because, you know, it's just really fun, like, to not have to think about, like, the moral consequences of roving bands of guerrilla police going through the streets and just indiscriminately murdering anyone who's even remotely accused of being a drug dealer, regardless of if they are or are not actual drug dealers. You're saying that, you're joking about that, but that's, like, the the Conjuring movies, the episode we did about the Warrens, it's like they, this huge massive film franchise is just it, it glorifying people that number one just first and foremost are just lying grifters on the surface but then if you just go one layer deeper one of them is also a pedophile and there's like this huge film franchise about them about how awesome they are yeah absolutely there are three main companies responsible for the creation of the banana republics in addition to the United Fruit Company, a.k.a. Chiquita, there was the Cayamel Fruit Company and Vaquero Bros. They were largely responsible for moving their company's production operations into these impoverished Central American countries. A banana republic is described as an impoverished country, typically in Central America, with a destabilized and corrupt government and an economy that depends solely on the production and export of one single item, typically by one single company that basically controls the entire country through land ownership and primary stake in things like the country's railroads and electrical grid. Throughout the early turn of the century, these three companies infiltrated Central America. By 1910, Cayamel Fruit Company was doing most of its business in the country of Honduras. But the president of Honduras at the time, Miguel de Villa, gave massive land grants to the rival fruit company Vaquero Bros in exchange for them helping to build some roadways. This pissed off the Cayamel Fruit Company and its owner, Samuel Zamore, and so he used the company's massive wealth to buy a large mercenary army and hand it over to the former president of Honduras, Manuel Bonilla. Bonilla used the army to stage a military coup in Honduras and overthrew President de Villa. So basically, we should start pitching a show called the game of bananas banana thrones throne banana games of thrones where it's just about all of the crazy shit that is behind bananas i had no idea i had no idea this is straight up game of thrones like for real like this shit no this is house of cards yeah totally bananas of cards in parentheses but without that rapist guy in a second but but also other with other other rapists yeah With other rapists and other dudes, comma, they do genocide. Yeah, it really is. It's We go into this in the episode and it gets mentioned or called out a few times. But number one, this is fucking unreal. This is all about bananas. And number two, going back to what I said in the beginning about how in the early stages of society, people just did these things with no inhibitions because there was no precedent that they couldn't. And unchecked capitalistic greed is just a recipe for mass atrocities and i like that you say in the early days of society this is only like a hundred years ago yeah not yeah i guess early days of society is the wrong way of saying it but i guess the not the early stages of society but as we were starting to form the sort of laws and the checks and balances of how our 
government fully worked and got out of the figurative and literal wild west this was in the early stages of that where you know and this was even this was pre the time of the the hearst newspapers controlling the country it was just like anybody could do anything and there was just thomas edison could just murder a elephant and it was like you could just do anything you could just do something and nobody was there to be like you can't do that you just be like, I want to murder this elephant to prove my point. It's still that same way. It does still happen. It This hasn't gone away. But as I said before, the tactics for getting away with it have just changed. You can't just do it out in the open anymore. Now you have to do it out in the open, but say you're not doing it out in the open and then put out a new Star Wars movie. Yeah, you have to do it out in the open and then wink to camera. Davia began cutting the three fruit companies' massive tax breaks and throwing land at them. And the United States, who at the time were fairly isolationist and hadn't yet started meddling in the affairs of foreign governments, took notice and rebuked the companies. However, they assured the U.S. that their business would actually cause Honduras to prosper and that the military coup had been a good thing. Perhaps this even implanted the seed in the mind of the American government that foreign meddling could become incredibly advantageous for the United States and formatively shaped what would eventually become its hawkish foreign policies. This turned out to not be true, though. Most of the commerce from the companies wasn't actually benefiting the country at all. The country became crippled with debt and unable to properly function, at which point the fruit companies came forward and offered to bail the government out, paying out of their pockets to build the country's entire infrastructure, roads, shipping lines, telephone lines, etc., which was helpful, but also meant that these three companies basically owned Honduras. United Fruit Company eventually bought out Cayamel Fruit Company, but then a few years later, Samuel Zamure staged a hostile takeover of the newly merged entity after feeling like it was being mismanaged, making him the sole owner of the company and most of Honduras by proxy. United Fruit Company would go on to stage similar gradual takeovers of many other countries in Central America, creating and collecting more banana republics. The Vaquero Bros were there as well, but to a much smaller capacity, and incidentally, they'd eventually rename themselves Standard Fruit Company and then ultimately would become Dole Food Company in 1991. Think about that the next time you get a Dole Whip from Disneyland. But this is United Fruit's story, and it's only just beginning. This is crazy. Fucking Samuel Zamuri was just like, guys, I know I was like over here selling fucking bananas and shit, but what if I was just like an emperor? Yeah, I mean, it's in, in this regard, John McAfee was a man out of time. He was these guys, and he, or he wanted to be these guys. And so that whole episode we did about John McAfee, we almost did in reverse of this is the origin. This is like when you watch Pulp Fiction and you're like, this is a really interesting, unique movie. And then you see any French New Wave film and you go, oh, this is exactly what it is. You watch Alphaville and you're like, oh, every way in which John McAfee lived his life was just like, I wish I was a business magnate from the late 1800s. Yeah, I wish I was a robber baron. I wish I was a despotic early capitalist train magnate. Like, this is just wild. This is wild. I think it's tripping me out so much because culturally we have an understanding that, oh, the train construction lines were like super hardcore and built with both obviously black slaves and Chinese immigrant slaves and Irish slaves. And there's an understanding of various industries that have employed and used abhorrent business practices and really took advantage of people. You know, you're aware that the robber barons in the 1920s that built New York were like horrible people and they got rich off of all of these just crazy business schemes. I didn't even know Chiquita Banana was a thing. So I sure as fuck didn't know that Chiquita Banana had a crazy dark ass history. Yeah. And that there's also this specific history of 
these big companies who are also exploiting people and have historically exploited people, namely slaves in the States, but that they have this like almost like R and D arm where they go off to these small third world countries and use them as like experimentation grounds for their dark dealing. You know, you go over to Africa or you go over to Central America and you do a crazier, more fucked up, more dark version and you refine it. And then you're like, okay, now we're going to do this refined version of our horrible deeds in the United States where we've worked out the kinks. Yeah, we've got our rough draft done. Ugh, God, that's so horrible. Jesus Christ. But yeah, it's honestly, as some of the listeners know, if you're a longtime listener and you're familiar with the show, we could just say it here that this whole thing was based on a previous episode, our episode about Disney versus the Air Pirates, which is oddly thematically fitting of this. They're almost companions in a way where we talked about this sort of exploitation and oppression of creators from a copyright standpoint. And then we move back even further into the even darker world of a real world corporations like Disney, but actually enslaving and killing people. But in that episode, it was revealed that you did not know what Chiquita Banana was. I mean, obviously I know what a banana is, but yeah, I'd never heard the brand name Chiquita before, which apparently is a thing. Apparently I should have known this, but I didn't. Which blew my mind, but it became a meme or like an inside joke. There was many memes generated from it. Many a pizza, pizza, paparizza, memeritza, celebritza meme was made on that day. (laughs) At some point, there's basically like two people. It's you and one of the listeners who are just like, I've never heard of Chiquita. That's not a thing. It must be regional because I've never seen one. And so I wanted to prove to them that it is a nationally known thing. So I went and looked up. I was looking up information about it. And what I found out was Chiquita banana is the number one banana globally. But in the process of it, I found this. I found this whole story by accident and I already knew it. I knew all this information about how the fruit industry destabilized Central America and caused these military coups and was involved in all this really dark, ghoulish colonialism. But I didn't know that it was specifically Chiquita Banana that was basically responsible for all of it. So once I saw that, I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. And and we had to do the episode. But it's mind blowing because it's especially because of the inside joke and the meme. I feel like some people, when they see this title, they're going to think it's a joke. Like we're doing another episode about our real lives and it's going to turn into something and just be about you like going off on a mission with the Chiquita woman, like the, the logo for the Chiquita woman comes to life and she's Barbarella style adventurer. And I go off on some mission with her. No, it's just depressing. Yeah, It's all real and it's fucking insane. It is straight up house of cards, Lord of the Rings. There are just these, these fucking crazy businessmen in the late 1800s and early 1900s who are just like, there's no facade of I care about human life and I'm still exploiting people, but here's all my rationalizations. No, they're just like, I don't care what you have to do. Overthrow this government, murder all these people. I need to make money from these bananas. It's fucking insane. (laughs) 
back to. I bet the girl in the raisins box hasn't ever murdered anyone. <laughs> Probably not even true. Guatemala is a Central American country right below Belize, which even further solidifies that comparison between John McAfee and these people. Before the Spanish colonization of the country in the 1520s, it was primarily inhabited by the Mayans. A Spaniard named Pedro de Alvarado arrived in Guatemala during this time and began a massive campaign of enslaving the indigenous people of the country. A caste system was slowly put in place, with the most powerful people in the country being the European-born Spaniards, followed by Guatemalan-born Spaniards, or Criolos, followed by the Ladinos, who were a mix of Spanish and Mayan blood. And at the very bottom, the slave population were the indigenous Mayans. In 1821, the Criolos negotiated independence from Spain and Guatemala became an independent nation-state. However, this changed nothing for the oppressed indigenous Mayans. With this newfound independence, the indigenous Mayans were released from the slavery of the colonial Spaniards. Ironically, though, severing ties with Spain also removed a safety net given by the country's massive wealth that created a baseline of protection for these Mayans. The slave population was freed, but without a safety net, they became deeply indebted to the wealthy landowners that held control over their homes and crops. They might as well have been enslaved. Throughout the 1800s, a series of dictators controlled Guatemala strengthening the country's coffee industry, but doing nothing to help the deep poverty that existed amongst the lower classes of people. From 1898 to 1920, Guatemala was under control of the dictator Manuel Estrada Cabrera. In addition to coffee export, Cabrera sought to bolster the country's wealth and economy through another form of export, tropical fruits, namely bananas. He welcomed the largest fruit company in the world, the United Fruit Company from the USA, to build their plantations, use their citizens as the workforce, and dominate the landscape dispossessing many of the country's indigenous peoples of their communal lands in the process. For the first half of the 20th century, United Fruit poured investment capital into Guatemala, buying the country's productive land and controlling shares in its railroads, electric utilities, and telegraph industries. United Fruit basically owned the Guatemalan government because they had controlling stake in most aspects of Guatemalan industry. United Fruit, aka Chiquita Banana, was exempt from internal taxation and allowed to only pay workers 50 cents per day. If any strike ever arose, Cabrera would shut it down. Cabrera's authoritarian rule ended after Guatemala suffered a massive earthquake in 1917, and Cabrera completely botched the recovery efforts. This opened a door for oppositional forces to press for his removal. At first, they urged the public to remove him for being an unfit leader during a natural disaster. Then they questioned his mental stability. Finally, in 1920, a military coup was staged to overthrow the dictator that resulted in a week-long civil war. Guatemala then entered a period of great upheaval until 1939, when Jorge Ubico was elected as the country's president. But in reality, he ruled the country as a dictator from 1939 to 1944. This process was intensified with the institution of harsh labor regulations and a police state. At this point in history, United Fruit was Guatemala's number one landowner, employer, and exporter. Their massive network of plantations basically became a nation-state in and of itself. However, United Fruit weren't happy with just the massive wealth they were squeezing out of Costa Rica, Honduras, Guatemala, and a few other Central American countries, and around this time, they also moved into Colombia. And though they never had as much of an oppressive stranglehold over that country, they nevertheless left a permanent scar on the face of the nation. And this is where it gets real dark. Every one of those paragraphs, I was like, so is this where I should stop us and say that this is not good? No, I'll wait to the next paragraph. Okay, this one is not... Oh, I'll wait to the next paragraph. No, this is not good. Okay, let's wait to the next one. We're full sewage drain and it here. Down here, we all float. Down here, we all dark cuts. In October of 1928, 32,000 Colombian United Fruit Plantation workers went on strike. 
They were asking for proper sewage and toilets, basic medical care, status as actual United Fruit Company employees rather than subcontractors, with basically zero protection under Columbia's labor laws. Which I just found so fucking crazy that we're dealing with those issues now, today, in this country, of these companies trying to take advantage of people by creating these systems of structures where people are subcontractors and freelancers and you can't have health care because of this reason, because you're technically this on paper and moving people around. And it's all just the same shit. People are still trying to just like fuck over the common worker as much as they possibly can get away with. And the right to be paid for their work in cash rather than coupons that could only be redeemed in United Fruit owned stores. That is so dark. They're not even, not, they weren't even getting paid in money. Yeah, we talked about company towns in the Disney World episode, but that's what it is. They had a company town similar to Fordlandia, the Henry Ford rubber plantation. It's a town where everybody lives, they work, and in a lot of cases, you get paid in just vouchers to spend at the stores that exist in the town. So you can never leave because you walk out of the door and you are literally broke. You've been working 10, 12 hour days for years. But if you step outside of that town, you have zero dollars. You have zero assets. So you're basically a slave. It's a corporate form of indentured servitude. The strike had become so big that it was actually making headlines in the United States, which spooked United Fruit. And they decided that something needed to be done about it. Back at home, they denied mistreatment of the workers, claiming, quote, no complaints have been received by our employees in a New York Times article. The company and the Colombian government seeking to demonize the strike labeled the workers as a violent communist uprising. Having uttered the C word, the U.S. government sprung into action threatening the Colombian government that if they didn't do anything to quash the strike and protect the interest of United Fruit, they would send in U.S. Marines to handle the issue. Colombia, fearing American occupation and wanting to keep the fruit company happy, immediately suspended the right to free speech and free assembly in the country and sent out armed Colombian militias to end the protests. In December of that year, Colombia declared martial law. I'm picturing this as happening with like an animated infomercial that they get sent. The Colombian government just everybody gets an email. And it's a little like flash video and you click on it and it's the Chiquita banana girl and she's like dancing around. And then she's like, if you want to live, you should suspend freedom of speech and then shrugs and walks off camera. <laughs> That's it. It's like one of those shitty e-cards from the mid 2000s that were like very popular. We're gonna bomb you into oblivion. Chiquita banana. That's how it would happen today. If it happened today, it would be a TikTok of that song by the Kid Leroy, Stay, where people walk around with the camera focused on their butt and it like jiggles. Whoa, whoa, martial law. Yeah, it would be that. It would just be announced that way. And then immediately, as soon as martial law was declared, the United States was transformed into a police state. You just look on social media and there would be people posting memes that are just like, when you find out that a country has declared martial law and then it's just that video of Michael Scott from The Office being like, no! And it's just millions of memes like that. That's how we react. We just meme it. I'll be fucked up if you don't police state. Whoa, martial law. The toupee. It hangs heavy on the head. <laughs> heavy rests the head that wears the toupee. On December 6th in the town of Cienega. Oh, that's right. Okay. Luckily, I'm having not a hard time pronouncing these names because they're all names of streets in Los Angeles. <laughs> December 6th in the town of Cienega, plantation workers gathered in the town square. 
But it wasn't even an actual protest. It was a Sunday, so it was simply the workers attending worship services and gathering in the town square to listen to a speech by the regional governor. General Cortez Vargas, who was in charge of the region, gave the order to, quote, face the crowds of rebels and kill before the foreign troops tread upon our soil. Four machine gun positions were stationed on rooftops on each corner of the town square, and the crowd was ordered to disperse within five minutes. It was physically impossible for the massive crowd of workers and their families, once again peacefully assembling to listen to a speech and not even protesting anything, to disperse that quickly. And after five minutes, the soldiers opened fire into the huge crowd. On the next day, the U.S. ambassador gave the following report to the Washington officials. Quote, I have the honor to report that the Bogota representative of the United Fruit Company told me yesterday that the total number of strikers killed by the Colombian military exceeded 1,000. The actual number of dead Colombians in what ended up being referred to as the Banana Massacre was believed to be closer to 3,000. The Banana Massacre. Jesus. Yeah, from a surface level, before actually getting into the real details, it's almost funny. It's almost like reading it just based on the meme of this thing of you not knowing about Chiquita and how we've talked about it all this time to read this article that is. And then Chiquita caused the banana massacre of 1920. It's almost like hilarious. It's like an onion article. Obviously, it's not funny whatsoever. And it's incredibly dark. But I can't believe like the humor comes from the fact that I can't believe that, number one, there's something called the Banana Massacre, and number two, that it's because it happened because of bananas. And that it was all spurred by a dude named Baker and Andrew. Lorenzo, my guy, what the fuck are you doing? They were long gone at this point. The No, sure, but you know what I mean, that they started the, the, the engines working that produced this. They started the engines that were then taken over by Samuel Zermuray, to murder a bunch of people because had to sell them nanners. Yeah, I'm never going to look at a nene again the same, that's for sure. And the craziest shit is, and we're going to get to this later on, but there wasn't even a demand for bananas yet. They weren't popular. They basically were doing this whole thing on spec. They were like, we're building infrastructure and we're dumping tons of money into creating this empire so that eventually we can create demand for bananas and we have this whole infrastructure in place. After the massacre, public mood towards United Fruit's presence in the country began to shift, and they were eventually forced to leave Colombia. They closed all their Colombian plantations and shipped all their equipment to Costa Rica. Back in Guatemala in June of 1944, a popular pro-democracy movement led by the university students and labor organizations forced dictator President Jorge Ubico to resign after the death of Maria Chinchilla Racinos, who was murdered by the police during a peaceful demonstration against Ubico's regime. He appointed a three-person military junta to take his place, led by Frederico Ponce Vedas. This junta continued Ubico's oppressive policies until it was toppled in a military coup led by Jacobo Arbenz in October of 1944, an event also known as the October Revolution. The coup leaders formed a junta which swiftly called for open elections. These elections were won in a landslide by Juan Jose Arevalo, a progressive professor of philosophy who had become the face of the popular movement. He implemented a moderate program of social reform, including a widely successful literacy campaign and a largely free election process although illiterate women were not given the right to vote and communist parties were banned. Coincidentally, or maybe not coincidentally at all, this same year the United Fruit Company rebranded their bananas as Chiquita Bananas as part of a massive ad campaign to try and manufacture popularity for the fruit in the United States. By this time in the company's history, they had secured a massive amount of land for growing great amounts of bananas through their Banana Republic tactics and an efficient way of exporting them with the Great White Fleet. But the third and final step was to actually massively grow demand for the fruit in the States. 
which at this point still weren't particularly popular. United Fruit launched an ad campaign in the U.S. featuring the animated character Miss Chiquita, a vaguely Latin female banana wearing a low-hanging skirt and a large hat full of various fruits on her head that would star in a series of animated ad spots and sing the Chiquita Banana Jingle as voiced by Patty Clayton. Please commit a genocide in my name. I'm the Chiquita Banana Lady. Police state inherent violence and all kinds of war profiteering. Chiquita Banana. I'm shaking my head right now because you don't even know, Dave. You don't even know. You aren't prepared for what we're about to see. The point of the ads weren't even to advertise Chiquita Banana specifically, but rather to educate the public about bananas in general preaching about their health benefits, delicious taste, and convenience to create a demand for them. Because of this, the commercials tended to be educational films where Miss Chiquita would waltz in, sing the Chiquita banana jingle, and then walk the audience through some kind of intriguing fact about bananas or a delicious recipe using them. So uh, we're, we're going to watch this first one. This is the first ever Chiquita banana ad spot. If the words police brutality and or a corporate genocide are not in here, I'm going to be a little disappointed. Just wait, Dave. Just wait. So this is the first ever one, and let's take a look at this, and let's get your thoughts on this. I'm Chiquita Banana, and I've come to say bananas have to ripen. It's a Chiquita Banana commercial from 1947. World War II has just ended. Okay, there's a ship sailing across the ocean, spelling out Chiquita Banana. Oh, I've seen this before. The Chiquita Banana is an actual banana anthropomorphized. I don't know where I've seen this commercial, but I've literally seen this before. The commercials are educational, so they really do walk through recipes or facts about bananas because they're literally just trying to make people know what bananas are. She's walking around a room that's filled with people at dining tables, men in suits. She's walking up to a small child and the child's father and the child's eating a banana and the dad tries to eat it and the kid smacks the, the dad's hand. It's impossible to beat them, but bananas like the climate of the very, very tropical equator. Okay, that was the first commercial. What did you think about that, Dave? What were your thoughts on that? My thoughts on that were I am being pulled back to when I was like eight years old and we had a VHS tape of public domain cartoons that we got at a dollar store in Tucson, Arizona. And I was obsessed with it because one of the public domain, or maybe it wasn't even public domain, but one of the animated things in it was a Fleischer era Superman cartoon. But they had a bunch of other stuff on that VHS. And that, I think, is where I've seen this Chiquita Banana commercial. Because they probably were just like, oh, it's something from the 40s. It's animated. Put it on this literal dollar VHS, which is where I probably have seen that. So I guess I did know what Chiquita Bananas were prior to this. I just didn't know what the fuck. I didn't know it was called Chiquita, but I've I've seen that commercial before from some sort of VHS that we got at a a dollar store. I think that's my best guess. But otherwise, is it... Fairly harmless kind of... Yeah, innocuous, just kind of propaganda for the idea of banana. Jaunty, fun, banana lady walking around singing, telling you that you shouldn't put bananas in the fridge and you need to wait till they have spots on them for them to be fully ripe and some lighthearted fun. Let's watch this other Chiquita Banana commercial from around the same time. Oh my God, the title of this is, video is Chiquita Banana and the Cannibals? Just watch, Dave. Chiquita Banana and the Cannibals? Just Dave, just... Speak not of what you don't understand. <laughs> I say, this is a nasty situation, what? Quite all right, old fellow. No! Carry on. 
I'm Chiquita Banana, and I've come to say that you really shouldn't treat a fellow man this way. If you like to be refined and civilized, your eating habits really ought to be revised. Suppose I show you by making banana scallops. Take a yellow banana, or even one tipped with green. Cut the banana in pieces about this size. After dipping them in egg, drain and roll in cornflake crumbs or breadcrumbs. Fry about two minutes until brown and tender. Then drain them well and serve hot. So. I'd like to say banana scallops taste to me like very cultured eating. So won't you join me, please, old fellow? For this time, I am treating. So what did we just see there, Dave? <laughs> what the fuck? That was horrifically offensive. That was holy shit. That was horrible. That that was fuck me. Holy shit. That was fuck, dude. Uh, yeah. So that was a recipe for how to make banana scallops sandwiched in between horrendous sambo awful racial caricature animated african cannibal bullshit it's like an animated blackface character if you've ever seen any of those banned 1940s and 50s cartoons like coal black and the seven dwarves or whatever he's a cannibal he's about to cook and eat this british explorer guy and then Chiquita, Miss Chiquita shows up and is like, don't eat people, eat banana scallops. It's the more civilized thing to eat. And then the black guy is like, oh, you've changed my cannibal ways. And now I'm going to eat bananas instead. Wow. I was not prepared for that. It's pretty out of left field. You know what was not on the dollar store public domain animation? That was not on it. Even in the 90s, they were like, we got to cut that one out. Damn. That was fucking crazy. Yeah. Pretty out of left field. Pretty bad. The campaign worked. The commercial jingle specifically became incredibly popular, at one point being played on the radio 346 times per day. The U.S. got banana fever, making United Fruit's need for power in Central America even stronger. Juan Jose Arevalo was president from 1945 to 1951, despite 25 coup attempts by conservative oppositional forces. During that time, he established many progressive programs in the country. He established the nation's social security system, the Bureau of Indigenous Affairs, a public health system, and gave women the right to vote in 1946. He was succeeded by Jacobo Arbenz, who continued these reforms in addition to establishing agrarian reforms meant to break up large monopolizing plantations in the countries and focus industry labor into smaller individually owned farms. Most importantly, he reclaimed massive amounts of unused land that had been given to the United Fruit Company during Estrada Cabrera and Yubico's authoritarian rules and sought to release them back to the nation's indigenous people. The massive seizing and redistribution of land from a private corporation to the lower castes of Guatemala raised alarm bells at the United Fruit Company, who immediately reported what was happening back to the U.S. and to President Eisenhower in a McCarthy-era Washington. The stench coming off of Guatemala was familiar. Communism. The real C word. <laughs> and just once again, these the, the echoes of history repeating themselves over and over again. Whatever you think of the political concept of communism, whether or not you think it's a thing that is good or bad or it would be harmful to the country. There is no doubt that people use terms like that as a form of 
demonizing groups of people, creating buzzwords that immediately strike fear in people's hearts and turn people against each other. You know, you see these people, it's all come back. This is the stuff that was happening in the 1950s, in the 1980s, and it's all come back. You see these people on the internet calling people Marxists and communists and socialists as these like dirty words. And once again, whatever you think about communism, the powers that be have weaponized these terms against certain types of people to quash dissent. If anybody is saying, hey, fuck this, the way that these things are happening right now is not working for the country. The way that these huge mega corporations and these powerful companies are controlling our society and just fucking over workers and manipulating us is not good. All they have to do is just start whispering in people's ears like they're communists. You have these people that have had their minds poisoned against these groups of people. And now suddenly it's no, I'm not just fighting for a cause of like better treatment for workers or for black people to not be murdered in the streets. I'm an evil communist and a Marxist, and I'm trying to destroy our country from within. Whatever you think about communism, that is what is happening. These are terms that have been implanted in your mind and weaponized to make you hate a group of people because that group of people's interests go against the interests of these corporations and politicians that want you to hate these people. Throughout the 50s and 60s, the US spearheaded a global campaign to stamp out communism on the world stage. A campaign that would largely fizzle out shortly after the US-backed Indonesian genocide we covered heavily in the episode about Joshua Oppenheimer's documentary, The Act of Killing, and then reignite in the 1980s during the Reagan era. But in the early 1950s, it was just getting started. With United Fruits crying home to mommy about their reclaimed land, in June 1954, Eisenhower authorized the CIA to organize and support a military coup led by conservative military colonel Carlos Castillo Armas to overthrow Arben's presidency. The CIA admitted to having done this during a massive D-class of thousands of documents in 1997. And incidentally, during the military coup in the 1950s, a young Che Guevara happened to be traveling through Guatemala, and he later credited what he saw there with inspiring his awakening into radical revolutionism and cementing his opinion of the United States as an imperialist power. Dave is over here, never having heard of Chiquita Bananas. Meanwhile, they are basically at the heart of every major world event in history. Yeah, it's true. It's true. The Chiquita Conspiracy is the the title of the Robert Ludlum book that I'm going to star in after this. The the Che Guevara thing blew my mind. He literally, he was just a young, carefree backpacker. And he went to Guatemala during the military coup that was caused by Chiquita Banana. And he just was looking at the bloodshed. And in that moment, his hair just grew and a fucking one of those like hats just appeared on his head and then like it just freeze framed and match cut to a (laughs) t-shirt with his face on it yeah and that's the end of the movie is it's a t-shirt with his face on it and two white people in los feliz and one of them's like sick che guevara shirt and the other one's like who smash to black I thought this was the guy from Rage Against the Machine. Arbenz was exiled. All Labor Party movements were disbanded and thousands of progressive movement supporters were murdered or exiled. All over bananas. Say it with me. This is bananas. Are we going to start calling like violent overthrows of South American countries a Chiquita? Like that's the new, instead of a coup, it's, it's just it, the slang term is, oh, the, we're the, the CIA did a Chiquita. It's like, the, it's always sunny in Philadelphia thing. It was like, you pulling a Chiquita? 
Oh, I'm, I'm definitely pulling a Chiquita, bro. Oh, you're doing a Chiquita right now? Are you doing a Chiquita on me right now? Yeah, yeah. Are you going to murder the firstborn of every family in this small village to keep them working in indentured servitude in company towns producing Chiquita bananas? Because I'm ready to murder some firstborn. Are we going to murder some firstborn today? Let's pull a Chiquita, man. Let's Chiquita it. Let's go full Chiquita. I'm full Chiquita right now. Full Chiquita. This isn't even a firstborn situation. We're just going to murder everyone under the age of 17. Fully ripe. It's got the dots. Bro, you know how some people like take the banana and they use the stem and they pull that down to the and they open it that way? That's the bullshit way to open a banana. The right way to open a banana is you pinch the top and you pull it down. That's what chimpanzees do. You pull that down and inside is a semi-automatic machine gun, which you use to murder everyone in your immediate vicinity. Oh, buddy boy, are you right? Is that the, is that the new nickname? <laughs> You're Papa uh, Pizza Paparita and I'm Oh, buddy boy. <laughs> The agrarian reform was completely undone and all the reclaimed land was given back to United Fruit. The open election process was closed, democracy was once again shuttered in Guatemala in favor of a dictatorship, preferred by U.S. interests over communism, and Castillo Armos ran an election in which he was the only candidate. He was president until 1957, when he was assassinated and replaced by another military leader who had to quash several attempted uprisings by progressive oppositional forces. By this time, the Workers' Party of Guatemala, or PGT, had become massively radicalized by the overthrow of Arbenz and formed the Rebel Armed Forces, or FAR. From the point of FAR's establishment in 1962, a decades-long civil war erupted that didn't end until 1996. So let's just recap that. Let's reflect on that. The actions of a banana company whose figurehead is a banana woman that dances around with a fruit hat on her head. The actions of this company in the 1940s, 1944, directly caused and reverberated out into a civil war that lasted until 1996. How many years is that? 60 or 30, 34 years, 34 year civil war. That's a 34 year long Chiquita. The company was like, they took some of our land that we weren't using. 34 year civil war. We really wanted to grow some bananas and they kind of made it slightly more ethical or tried to make it slightly more ethical. Rain hellfire on them for three and a half decades. Burn these fucks to the ground because we had some land that we weren't yet using and they were like, give some of that to these poor people so they can grow food and not be starving. You know how long and isolating it felt to be a Star Wars fan when the original series ended before the prequels started that 30 years where you were just like, fuck, I really wish there was more Star Wars. Imagine that, but instead of, fuck, I wish there was more Star Wars, it was, fuck, I wish this banana company wasn't raping and pillaging and murdering everyone I love. Fuck, I wish I could eat. Fuck, I really wish I could eat a banana because I actually really do like bananas, but every time I take a bite of a banana now, I just start weeping and spontaneously shit myself and vomit. It tastes like ash in my mouth. It tastes like ass in my mouth, which I also like. But not when it's Chiquita. Yeah, when you eat a banana, going back to those commercials, it's basically going ass to mouth with Miss Chiquita, for sure. <laughs> I love a Chiqu I wish there was a little Chiquita jingle about the ass to mouth. 
Yeah, they just can they continued on with that ad campaign, but instead of just educating about bananas, she starts educating about other things and she starts talking about the sanitary way of going ass to mouth, destigmatizing it. Make sure there's no fecal matter, fecal matter. I miss Chiquita and I'm here to say if you go down on her, just make sure there's no dirt in the way. Wash your body in a bath or shower and then you can go ass to mouth for several hours. I know it's very fashionable, but just take it from me. You don't want to be going to a hospital in a dirigible, which is the only type of hospital that's going to be in existence in the war-torn areas where Chiquita Bananas have left you persistent. It backs out and this is on a TV screen and it's just like some old 1940s businessman and he's like, let's do the cannibal one instead. In 1982, at the start of the third act climax of the Cold War and under the ham-fisted grip of the Reagan administration, the early whispers of communism in Guatemala by the United Fruit Company in the 1950s had echoed out into a deafening roar. The CIA was working closely with the Guatemalan army, training them on counterinsurgency strategies and tactics, puppeteering them to wipe out the invisible threat of communism in the country. The indigenous Mayan people in the country, accused of being uniformly pro-guerrilla and therefore communist collaborators, were rounded up by the Guatemalan army in their villages and massacred. This mass genocide included the deaths of an estimated 200,000 people, 83% of which were Mayans. The government's military forces were acting on the strong urging of the U.S. government and the CIA's desire to stamp out the global communist threat. And empowered by their training, a CIA document declassed in the 90s showing that the CIA had provided the Guatemalan army with training handbooks on things such as how to sneak into someone's home and systematically execute a family of eight people sitting around a dinner table in one room as quickly and efficiently as possible. The United States created the killing machine that went on to murder and torture hundreds of thousands of people. And... Perhaps most importantly, the United States poured millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars into training. They trained the Guatemalan military how to raid houses. They trained them in surveillance. They trained them in interrogation techniques. Uh, And we have now, years later, the declassified CIA and Defense Department manuals to prove it. Um, I have something from, for example, as early as 1954, which is called a study of assassination. And it describes in the most chilling and bureaucratic terms how to murder an individual or individuals. It it even goes on to to, uh, show in graphic terms how to enter a room with 10 people sitting around a table and murder them one by one. So these documents give us a very rare glimpse into the inner workings of uh, a counterinsurgency strategy and tactics that we were very much on. What the, the fuck is that chicken scratch? That doesn't tell you anything. What the? Fu- it's just like. Okay, guys. So excuse my chicken scratch. I'm I'm not a good artist. I just draw stick figures. I just draw stick figures. But you're gonna walk into this room, and so see those are the heads. Just so just deal like bear with me. These are the heads. So these are the people. I know these are just like little circles, but like these are the people's heads. So you're gonna walk in the room. That's the per- yeah. See, that's the little the little circle, but then there's a little stick on it. That's you with that's the gun. I don't do this. I don't. I'm not an artist. Don't judge me. So you walk in here, and then you're just see that's the little that little dot. That's the bullet, and you're gonna sh- you shoot that guy, and then you shoot that guy, and you just shoot them all until they're dead. Does that make sense? I'm so bad at this. All the while, the Reagan administration downplayed and underreported the violence going on in Guatemala at the time. 
It wasn't until the late 90s when teams of forensic scientists and anthropologists uncovered mass graves in several Mayan villages and began to examine uncovered bodies and extract Guatemalan government-supplied bullets that we learned the full extent of the Guatemalan government and, by extension, U.S. government's role in this genocide. Last March, President Clinton made an official visit to Guatemala. In a first for a U.S. president, he openly acknowledged that America's support for repressive regimes here and elsewhere in Latin America had been wrong. I will reaffirm America's commitment to shed light on the dark events of the past so that they are never repeated. But for those like the young team at the Foundation for Forensic Anthropology, who are presented every day with the gruesome consequences of their country's past, a mere acknowledgement of responsibility is not enough. I don't think uh, you can change the responsibility or the involvement the United States government had just with one speech. Um, I haven't seen any difference before or after the speech. Um, I think if, they, if the United States government really wants to contribute, they're going to have to do it in a more direct fashion with projects, with some other way. Um, speeches only go so far. It was similar to the act of killing thing where a little less hidden than that, but it was really like there were these villages all over, these Mayan or indigenous villages in Guatemala that these people in these villages, this was discovered in the late 90s and this genocide had happened 200,000 people dead. And these people that live in these villages, they all just knew about this and there were these mass graves and they were aware of it. It was like the act of killing thing where they were just like, if you went up and talked to one of these people, they'd be like, yeah, there's a mass grave over there. And my wife and daughter are buried. They died back in the 80s. They were murdered. And it was just this thing that they all knew, but nobody else knew it outside of that. And then these forensic scientists in Guatemala teamed up with these anthropologists from the United States. And they went and like unburied these mass graves and harvested out these skeletons and discovered that they were all systematically executed by the Guatemalan army, which was just not said. And so we've learned the dark origins and rise to power of Chiquita Banana, but largely throughout a time period defined by corruption, bloodshed, and clandestine government crimes that feels wholly removed from our modern society. Surely in a more contemporary era, the banana company fronted by a dancing lady with fruit on her head has settled into a much more ethical place, correct? And by all accounts, if you go to Chiquita's website and engage with her brand in any capacity, this seems so. Their bright and cheerful brand colors wrap around claims of ethically farmed products no longer yielded from a campaign of bloodshed. But remember back to what we said in the beginning of the episode and know that this is far from the truth. Act 3. Every banana split you eat results in the death of 10 children. Probably. In the 1960s, United Fruit felt like the countries that they had destabilized in Central America were becoming too dependent on bananas. They attempted to diversify by purchasing companies like A&W Restaurants in 1966 and Baskin Robbins in 1967. One of those 31 flavors is gunpowder and Guatemalan bone fragment. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! Holy fuck! G&G, &G, man! Delicious. Bro, do you guys got some of those new G&Gs? No? Oh, you're, you don't sell consumable products that have bone fragment in them? 
However, in 1970, they sold off these companies after a man named Eli Black bought the United Fruit Company, merged it with his meat production company, and rebranded the entire thing as United Brands. However, in 1975, seemingly out of nowhere, Eli Black, the owner and CEO of United Brands, who had just bought the United Fruit Company only five years prior, walked to the window of his office on the 44th floor of a building in New York City, threw his briefcase through the glass, and jumped to his death. You think he was just haunted by the ghosts of the genocides that his company had caused before, both uh, animal and human? Yeah, like Jacob Marley in The Christmas Carol, Lorenzo Baker and Andrew P. visited him as ghosts. They were like, we're not here to tell you that we lived a life of bloodshed and that everything we did was wrong. We're totally fine with what we did. We just don't like the idea of a different guy owning this company. Kill yourself and let us rule from the afterlife. Change the name of the company to United Beyond the Graves brand. Well, actually, Andrew P. and Lorenzo Baker, they were the first to patent the dual cremation mixed in an urn together method. So when they visited him as a ghost, they were like a monstrosity merged together Cronenbergian creature. They were Landrew. We're warn you about the dark told that this company will take you. Nobody had any idea why and initially concluded that he had just been majorly overworked. The company wasn't in great financial shape. There were massive export taxes at the time that had been cutting into the company's profits, and he was working 18-hour days. However, a few weeks later, it was discovered that Black had authorized payment of a bribe. United Brands had recently paid the president of Honduras over $1 million to reduce the export taxes that were plaguing the company. Other bribes were quickly discovered, and it became clear that Black decided to end things after the mounting pressure and fear of being found out for these illegal bribes. <laughs> the fucking Chiquita banana. I can only imagine, because for me, it's like, oh, this thing that I'm very familiar with has this fucked up, cursed history. But you're just like, this is like fucking, you're like a, a fish in a koi pond who is just discovering that there's a world outside of the pond for the first time. <laughs> You didn't realize there was a third dimension until now. I just also like imagine if he had not bought Chiquita Banana, if he had not taken on that lineage of bloodshed and genocide, he wouldn't have been forced to put million dollar bribes to the Honduran president. Yeah, which I totally I'm not saying I doubt this guy was like a great stand up guy or whatever. But I'm sure I guarantee you that he just saw this company and he was like he saw an opportunity to consolidate and expand his business and maybe his meat company, it had hit a wall and he wanted to like go further. So he thought, okay, I'm going to buy this very successful company and just consolidate and become this huge conglomerate. And I'm sure that he was not expecting, as I don't think anyone would be, the fucking blood on the hands of the company and just like the fucking murder that has to happen for bananas to come to the United States. I'm sure he just got the keys to the kingdom and then just was like, this is what it takes. This is how this works. This is how the sausage is made. For fucking bananas? I have to give million dollar bribes to the president of Honduras for bananas? I expected this to be low key. I have a factory farming enterprise where I have to systematically, ruthlessly murder sentient beings to feed humanity, which I'm morally conflicted about. I, I was expecting bananas to be a, a pivot to something more mundane. Yeah, I'm sure whenever he was negotiating the sale, the owners were just like, 
I don't know, man. I don't know if you're prepared. I don't know if you're ready for this. And he's just like, come on, man. Don't fucking jerk me around. Like, I've been in this business for years. I've seen it all. I've seen the worst of the worst. I can handle anything. And they were like, I don't know, man. I don't know. I I, I, I don't think that you want to do this. And he was like, come on. F- fuck, man. Don't treat me like a kid. I know what I'm fucking doing here. Show me the money, baby. Show me the money. Show me the bananas. Show me the Chiquita. Show me the Chiquita. And they're like, you don't know what that term means. <laughs> they're like, all right, man. And it was like, and they're, they're like, they're trying to preserve his innocence, but they're also like desperately wanting to get this thing off of their hands. It was like, it's like the fucking monkey's paw. And they're just like here, like it's ha- handing the tape from the ring to somebody else. After Black Suicide, Cincinnati based American Financial Group, one of billionaire Carl Linder Jr.'s companies, bought into United Brands. In August of 1984, Linder took control of the company and renamed it Chiquita Brands International. A moment in history Dave never read about. We're finally here. We're finally at the zenith. <laughs> finally, back to the start of the Chiquita. We've crossed the Chiquita Con. The Chiquita Con, yes. Throughout the rest of the 80s and 90s, Chiquita went through a huge economic slump with their stock prices and annual income plummeting. Some of this can be blamed on things like mismanagement and just the natural conditions of the marketplace, but stock prices also weren't helped when company investors got wind of the bevy of scandals the company continued to get itself into. Such as in 1996, when a Chiquita executive was arrested and charged in an attempted kidnapping of an executive from a rival fruit company. (laughs) Bro, he rolled up to the the head of Dole and was just like, you're about to get Chiquita'd. And the guy was like, "Uh, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I work at Dole. And he goes, I know. They're out here fucking, they're out here disappearing people over fucking bananas people are waking up and there's fucking just banana peels in their bed ernst otto stalinsky former director general of the irish produce company fiefs plc in honduras accused richard anderson and seven other chiquita officials of kidnapping him in a hotel room in san pedro sula in march of 1990 charges of kidnapping blackmail coercion housebreaking extortion and attempted murder were filed against anderson as well as carl f koch Robert F. Kistinger. That's cock, dude. That's cock. That word is pronounced cock. Okay. Whatever you say, buddy boy, as well as Carl F. Cock. <laughs> yeah, dude. I'm not making that up. That's how that word is pronounced. As well as Carl F. Cock, Robert F. Klitsinger. Kiss, Kissinger? Kisten, Kistinger? And Charles Ass. And Alexander Bikorsky, which is, that's like my, that's like my really shitty pseudonym, Bikorsky. I'm Alexander, I'm not Dave Baker, I'm Alexander Bikorsky. Carl F. Koch, Robert F. Kistinger, Charles Morgan, and Alexander Bukowski. Bukowski. So that one has Koch in it. It's pronounced Bukaki. Carl F. Koch, Robert F. Klitt. Charles <laughs> Astamouth and Alexander Bukaki. Yes, we're very mature here at Dark Cuts. Of the United States, Eduardo Aragon, Manuel Rodriguez, and Juan Jose Osario of Honduras. All were identified as executives of Chiquita Brands in Honduras. All of the men were eventually acquitted of the charges. They went full Chiquita and then just were like, get us out of this. Bail us out, fancy lawyers. We fucking... We, secreted away this dude we threw a chiquita banana burlap sack over his head 
It's full of exotic tropical fruit spiders biting him on the face. We took him out of the hotel and took him to our room and interrogated him and tried to try to get him to give us the secret recipe to their bananas. How do you do it? What are, what's the secret recipe for your Irish bananas? And we got and they got away with it scot-free. He's pinned up against the wall dressed as a cowboy with a tall, dark clad Blackwater employee punching him. And eventually he goes, it's a Chiquita. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Full circle. I wish that's where we could end the episode. I wish we could just end it right there. And it turns out that it turns out that Dan O'Neill is that thief's Irish because he was he is Irish and he was part of he was like did that whole thing with the IRA and stuff like that. Like he was the Irish banana executive and he's he went deep undercover as this like performance artist and he, he was like in witness protection against the fucking Chiquita cartel that was after him. By 2001, Chiquita was in financial dire straits and filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. However, they've since reorganized the business and largely turned things around for themselves. The United Fruit Company's entire process of creating a plantation to farming the banana and the effects of these practices created noticeable environmental degradation when it was a thriving company. Infrastructure built by the company was constructed by clearing out forests, filling in low swampy areas, and installing sewage, drainage, and water systems. Ecosystems that existed on these lands were destroyed, devastating biodiversity. With a loss in biodiversity, other natural processes within nature necessary for plant and animal survival have been shut down. Techniques used for farming were at fault for loss of biodiversity and harm to the land as well. To create farmland, the United Fruit Company would either clear forests, as mentioned, or would drain marshlands to reduce avian habitats and to create quote-unquote good soil for banana plant growth. The most common practice in farming was called, quote, shifting plantation agriculture. This is done by using produce, soil, fertility, and hydrological resources in the most intense manner, then relocating when yields fell and pathogens followed banana plants. Techniques like this destroy land, and when the land is unusable for the company, then they move to other regions. So in addition to genociding people, they're also just genociding the fucking planet. This is where if you take the Chiquita logo and you put it under one of those CSI Miami enhancement things, and you just say enhance a bunch of times, if you zoom in really far on the C in Chiquita, it actually just spells out genocide. In March 2007, Chiquita Brands pleaded guilty in a United States federal court to aiding and abetting a terrorist organization. So here we're on to the next. We're on to the we're nearing the end of the station. We're getting to our final stop and our next phase as we pull into the station. Chiquita Bananas directly funds death squads, roaming cartels of death squads in Central America that are just going around indiscriminately murdering people for their extremist religious and political beliefs. And they're taking advantage of that and being like, hey, while you're out there indiscriminately murdering people for your extremist political beliefs, can you also like just intimidate a few people and tell them to give their land to Chiquita and just while you're out, you might as well. You pick, Can you pick me up some plantation land? Chiquita admitted to the payment of more than $1.7 million to the United Self-Defense Force of Colombia, or UAC, a group that the United States has labeled a terrorist organization since 2001. Under a plea agreement, Chiquita Brands agreed to pay $25 million in restitution and damages to the families of victims of the UAC. The UAC had been paid to protect the company's interests in the region. So even as recently as 2007, this company is like, if you're brown and I cannot see you in front of me, I don't care if you live or die as long as I can sell these nanners. 
I value the experience of biting into a banana more than I value the concept of a human being's life. Some snot-nosed, shitty little kid needs a banana split at this moment or they're going to scream in the mall and embarrass their mom. Get in this mass grave, you non-existent person. I am a big fan of going to the local grocery store and seeing a giant stack of bananas piled high because it makes me think, as an executive of the Chiquita Banana Corporation, of the giant stacks of bones that my company has littered across many South American countries. Bro, I know you want to just live your life and have a normal life with your family where you're all safe and healthy and able to eat and just be left alone to live out your rural, peaceful existence. But you're going to need to walk in front of this firing squad because there are a ton of clowns waiting to slip on banana peels at this moment. Have you ever heard of a thing called a firing squad? Welcome to the Chiquita squad. We're going full Chiquita. The American arm of colonialism raining napalm across the globe with giant missiles falling to the ground and emblazoned on the side of them is just an illustration that is Chris Evans in Not Another Teen Movie in that scene where he comes out with the whipped cream over his dick with the banana sticking out of it. Just fucking the world stage with his banana dick. Captain America motherfuckers. I didn't even realize the Captain America thing until just now. This is the best metaphor that anybody has ever made. And I was discovering it along with you as I was saying it. Discourse can end. I just said the best thing that anybody has ever said. I got nothing more. Let's go. In addition to monetary payments, Chiquita has also been accused of smuggling weapons, 3,000 AK-47s, to the UAC and in assisting the UAC in smuggling drugs to Europe. Chiquita brands admitted that they paid UAC operatives to silence union organizers and intimidate farmers into selling only to Chiquita. In the plea agreement, the Colombian government let Chiquita brands keep the name of the U.S. citizens who brokered this agreement with the UAC secret in exchange for relief to 390 families. They're straight up just like, you scratch our back. You know, I know we're a banana company. I know that our whole business is just like putting these weird, oddly shaped yellow things that look like living cartoons into grocery stores. And when you type it on a keyboard, it is like a weird, humiliating experience. You feel like a clown when you're typing the word bananas. But if you help us, we will get you all the guns and drugs you could ever ask for. Despite calls from Colombian authorities and human rights organizations to extradite the U.S. citizens responsible for war crimes and aiding a terrorist organization, the U.S. Department of Justice has refused to grant the request, citing, quote, conflicts of law. As with other high-profile cases involving wrongdoing by American companies abroad, the U.S. State Department and the U.S. Department of Justice are very careful to hand over any American citizen to be tried under another country's legal system. So for the time being, Chiquita Brands International avoided a catastrophic scandal and instead walked away with a humiliating defeat in court and eight of its employees fired. So these countries are like, hey, you know all those guys that directly decided to fund genocides in our country and are just like murdering people could you like i'm uh, like i'm not going to shoot the messenger i'm not saying it's you uncle sam i'm not saying it's you but those guys they murdered us could we like have them over here and put them on trial for genocide and the united states is like i hear what you're saying i value your perspective 
but you can fuck off to the edge of our flat planet, you piece of shit. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, the uh, there's some people, and they showed up, and they're like, hey, guys, we've been wronged. We would like our day in court. And the U.S. government was like, no, but we'll fire those guys. I know they murdered people. They should be in prison. They should be tried as, as war criminals. But instead, we're just going to make them get a different job. Yeah, you should be happy. That guy is having a rough day today. He's no longer employed, which is the most important. Th- that's the most important thing in our society. It's worse than it's worse than death for us. It's worse than death. That guy in 2014 losing his job, he might as well be dead. That's actually what they should rename. They should rename war as fruit arguments. We'd get in a lot less wars. War has now officially been rebranded as fruit arguments. As a result of this, in 2014, it was discovered that Chiquita Brands had poured hundreds of thousands of dollars into a campaign to block a bill in Congress. <laughs> We're almost done, but like it's not going to the stranglehold is not going to loosen before the end. We're almost to the we're butting up against the end. And it's not going to stop. Chiquita Brands had poured hundreds of thousands of dollars into a campaign to block a bill in Congress meant to provide support and aid to victims of the September 11th World Trade Center terrorist attack. Why? Because the bill included a section that would make it easier for victims of terrorist attacks to sue companies that provided financial funding to terrorist organizations, which Chiquita had done for years and was going to great lengths to keep out of the public eye. Like, on top of... The fucking cherry on top of this banana split of blood is after all of this, they were also like, hey, we're fuck 9-11 victims. Like, guys, thank you for coming to this meeting. Randy, I appreciate you driving in from Queens today. I know you were supposed to have a little mini staycation, but I just want to let you know that we've got a little bit of a problem. Got a little bit of a... So there's some new legislation that's going to be passing the House next week that we really need to kill, no pun intended, because it has a little thing in there about, like, funding terrorist organizations, which low-key we've been doing for the past fucking 40 years, and we just really want to make sure that we don't get caught. So if you guys could just add that to your to-do lists this week, we'll circle back, make sure that we just take safety nets away from 9-11 families, survivors, because there's a couple sentences in there that could be, uh, you know, a little, uh, little, little toasty for us, a little problematic for us. You know, we don't want to point any fingers, but we really want to keep our whole funding terrorism thing going. So if we could just add that to our deliverables for the end of the month, that'd be great. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Just just from an optics perspective, I'm just spitballing out loud here. I'm thinking out loud. But, you know, is there a way that we can keep funding terrorist organizations and also not be held accountable or found out for it, but also just from a PR standpoint, but also not be known for attempting to take away like support for the most widely publicized terrorist attack on American soil in like modern consciousness that's like incredibly politically charged in both sides of the aisle. Is there a way to just have our banana split needed to? I we say that here. We that's a thing. We say that. Thanks, Randy. Thank you for chiming into this meeting and, and calling in on this Google Meets hangout session that you've managed to set up. I'm glad you set it up. Last time had a little bit of problem, didn't you? Didn't you have a little problem dialing in last time? Appreciate you showing up this time. You raised some valid concerns, good points. I'm really excited that you're contributing to the culture of Chiquita Brands. But we really value your input and we really um, want to create a workspace where our employees feel that they have as much ownership over genocide. I'm Chiquita Banana Brands 
as the executive branch does, uh, we do. And uh, we just really want to just really want to dial in on this whole like we really need to kill the bill, though, because if not, we're all going to be tried for war crimes as a co-conspirators in acts of terrorism. Next time, maybe worry a little bit less about the PR and maybe worry a little bit more about how long a life sentence is. If I could just chime in for a second, you know, I, I had myself on mute, but I just feel like I could chime in and just really nip this in the bud. And this is Arthur Corruptman, your lawyer, your legal counsel. And I, I think I can, I think I can really just make this whole thing a moot point. I think you can, as you in your parlance, have your banana split needed too. All you have to do is just do it. Just do the thing where you kill the bill, but just not care. And you see what will happen is you'll do this and then a new Transformers movie will come out and nobody will even notice. I think you're good. I think we're all I think there's no more to discuss here. Thank you, Arthur Corruptman. As head of the Chiquita Brands, I second not caring. So I say let's do that. Let's not care because we don't have to because we're not going to be held accountable because corporations are people now. Cool. Bye. End of call. Smash cut to the coffee dispenser? What a coffee pot? Coffee <laughs> thing? I don't know. What are, the, what are those things you called? You don't know coffee maker. things. Coffee maker? No, I you don't. haven't heard of things. Yeah. What is that called? A coffee machine? Espresso machine? Whatever. Yeah, c- coffee maker. Yeah. Smash cut to the coffee maker. Two Chiquita Banana Brands employees are standing there waiting for the coffee to enter their mugs as they're waiting. They don't know each other, though. They're in different departments. So that was a pretty crazy meeting. Yeah. Terrorism, huh? Terrorism. That's the mid-credit stinger for the Chiquita Brands movie. Just the apathetic shruggery of it all. This, however, didn't stop the families of six people killed during the 1990s by the Colombian guerrilla organization known as FARC from suing Chiquita Brands in 2018 for providing funding to the terrorist group. A lawsuit they would later settle out of court for an undisclosed sum. Chiquita Bananas still has a stranglehold on Central America, now mostly operating out of their original headquarters in Honduras. And though there hasn't been quite as much upheaval in the countries as there was throughout the turn of and mid-century, on June 28, 2009, a military coup overthrew and exiled sitting Honduran President Manuel Zela. Considering that Zela had recently enacted reforms that had raised the labor minimum wage in the country by 60%, which was a direct hit to Chiquita's pocketbooks, many openly speculate that the fruit company may have returned to their old ways and worked behind the scenes to fund and support the coup, though it's never been definitively proved. The Honduran Business Council and the United States spun the story to paint Zella as a would-be dictator and the military coup as a constitutional response to an attempted establishment of authoritarian rule. Anybody who was paying attention bought it. You've probably never even heard of it. Go back to staring at your iPhone, you corporate cuck. Man, that ends on a dark note. That ends on a dark note. It's dark cuts, baby. Jesus. I don't even know what to say to sum this episode up. I guess my closing thoughts are, one, it feels like the closer you get to something that's vital to the human condition, like something like clothing, food, housing, water, any of those essential resources because everybody needs them the demand is so high that they're just inherently con conflict based so even benign things like bananas have an inherently dramatic history and story due to the fact that they are 
um, so closely associated with human survival, which is just really interesting to think about because I hadn't actually comprehended it in those terms before that like, obviously the production of shoes is wildly problematic and horrifically blood bloodshed laden. And even the like bullshit corporate like facade attempts at counteracting that. There's a whole history about how Tom shoes, their whole thing is like, you buy a pair of shoes from us and we give a pair to a person in need in third world countries. And the whole thing about that is like in those countries where they send these shoes, the people in the countries are like, we don't want shoes. We want food, motherfuckers. We can't do anything with these fucking shoes. And it also displaces the shoemakers in the country. There's people that make shoes because, you know, not every country works like the United States where it's like this series of corporations that have these massive factories mass producing things that we buy in bulk in these huge, you know, chains and department stores. Like in a lot of countries, there's just towns where there's like fucking local shoemakers and barbers like the, the the way that it should be where there are these people that like directly own, have ownership over the means of production and create things for for sale within their community and it actually like fucks over those people who are just like oh nobody will buy my shoes because you're just giving them these shitty shoes so even that fake thing of make yourself feel better about the slave labor that goes into shoe production by buying Tom shoes, which is this thing that also fucks over people in third world countries and is barely better. Yeah, it's all of it is super depressing. It's also truly bizarre to me that we got led down the kind of rabbit hole of what episodes we're going to do based off of me not knowing Chiquita bananas and now learning that not only are they a giant company with a dark, bloody history, but they literally support terrorists. So I guess my final thought would be to everybody who's scolding me for never having supported the delicious fruit of Chiquita Banana. I have the last laugh now, motherfuckers! <laughs> yeah, the going back to what you said, I think this is like the perfect sort of example or this the perfect synecdoche for the destructive force of mass global capitalism which is like the fact that it's so absurd and the fact that it's bananas and the fact that it's like all of this over just these dumb little fruits that is like moderately delightful to have but that's the perfect exemplification of how like you were saying before, we we have a massive demand for this because we have a massive demand for everything. Everything has to be mass produced in these huge ways. And the demand dictates this need for these global campaigns of deforestation and destabilizing countries and draining them of their resources and destroying land. Because we're just, we always just need to keep up with this constant massive demand that's been artificially generated. Like we don't actually need all this stuff, but this they've in the same way that they built this infrastructure for banana production before the banana people even wanted bananas. And then they just like convinced us that we wanted bananas. That's how everything is. This, these things happen 
these people say like, hey, you need this stuff. And then we're like, oh, never thought about it, but oh, I'll try it. And then they're just pumping you full of it. And then you get used to it. And then it's if you if it went away, you would feel like you were losing something. So they almost get hooked on the the consistency and the, the, the volume of these things that you need it. And if you didn't have this much of it, you would be lesser. You wouldn't be a full person. You would be one of these third world country poor people that doesn't have enough or whatever. That's always what it's telling you. And so they create this artificial demand for these things that we don't actually really want or need. We don't need fucking 10 bunches of bananas in our house every week or whatever the fuck, but we think we do. And so the demand for this is artificially created. And then because of the demand for it, they have to farm and yield these huge, these huge bulk amounts of these things. And because, like you said, these things are tied to human existence, that these things are grown in communities and they're grown by people. And because of that need to keep the margins as wide as possible and as high as possible, then the path of least resistance is going to be exploitation, slavery, genocide, murder, because it's everything in service of giving you as much of this shit as possible and making it as cheap as possible for you and making it as cheap as possible for them so that they make the most amount of money as possible while you also are continuing to buy it. And this this is the perfect example of it because it's so ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, like it, it's understandable, like in a consumerist society, you it's more and it's not reasonable. It's completely horrific, but there is a kind of like implicit bias where we've been so indoctrinated about physical things that like when we hear that iPhones are produced in Chinese factories where they're getting paid 10 cents a day and the batteries are exploding and killing people, we we kind of understand that concept. But at the end of the day, we all have iPhones because we need to get around and we need Google Maps and we need to text people and we need all of these things that we think we need. So it's it makes life exponentially easier. Therefore, someone else's struggle, it's almost there's a finite amount of struggle that goes into producing or owning an object. And that struggle can either be amortized over everyone or it can be bottled up and shunted off to an unseen, unfeeling person in a factory somewhere. And if they struggle and they experience the inconvenience and the pain, then you don't have to. Like, it's like you getting lost on a highway somewhere in California is equal to four seconds of somebody's hand being singed on a factory line somewhere. And you get to either choose, oh, I want that person to experience the pain so I can have the object that will make my life easier. Or you can just learn the fucking highway system in California and get around and have things be inconvenient and not be able to Google things at a split second, which neither one of us have opted into. We've obviously, we are both 100% complicit in this system, but that doesn't mean that you can't be angry about the system. And this Chiquita Banana example is the most extreme or one of the most extreme examples I've ever seen of this, where it is literal genocide, all of that pain and suffering to produce a minor abatement of hunger. Like, it's not even like you don't eat a banana and are like full for the entire day. It's like a fucking snack. That's what's so surreal is that like you you can kind of understand why there is so much conflict around iPhone development or around, you know, Nike sneakers or whatever, because there are these items that produce 
large amounts of emotional or literal return for the people that own them. Basically, you understand the point that I'm making, though, the, that there's like a finite amount of struggle and Americans have chosen to push that struggle or first world nations have chosen to push that struggle as far away from them, their physical proximity as possible. And they want to have it be unseen and dispassionate, uncaring people in other world in, in other countries, worlds away. I, I mentioned it on the act of killing episode, and I'll just mention it again to just perfectly encapsulate everything that you're just talking about right there and everything we've been talking about. I would highly recommend reading the short story, The Ones Who Walk Away from Amalas. It's a relatively quick read. It's something you can just find on the internet, and I would highly recommend you read this. Just, It's just, it's a perfect metaphor for everything that we're talking about right now. And on that note, I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. I'm Andrew Preston. I'm Lorenzo Baker, and this has been Dark Cuts slash Deep Cuts. You can find me online at heydavebaker.com or on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter at xdavebakerx. You can find my comics, Star Trek Voyager 7's Reckoning, Everyone is Tulip, and Night Hunters, available in comic book stores wherever you want. Or Fuck Off Squad. You can get Fuck Off Squad, too. Andrew, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on a campaign of global colonialism, deforesting and destabilizing a third world Central American country so that I can rape the land of its banana resources and buy up controlling stake in the infrastructure of the company so that I can control it with an iron fist to harvest these bananas for the brand new Pizza, pizza, paparizza, banana, bonanza, pizza special coming to your local pizza, pizza, paparizza chain this summer. And you can also find me at dapricerights.com where you can get my book, Deadbolt AI Private Eye. But you can also get some Deep Cuts merch. We got shirts. We got stickers. We got other stuff with a variety of graphics, Deep Cuts graphics. Uh, you can go to deepcutspod.com and click on the shop, or you can just go to bit.ly.com slash merch and pick up your shirt or sticker today. Get a Deep Cut sticker and stick it over your Chiquita banana, over the Chiquita banana label, so that you don't have to think about the blood that went into the banana that you're eating. And you can just think about our faces. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, junior sleuths of the Mystery Treehouse Investigation Agency, meme chefs, it's time for yet another pizza, pizza, paparizza, memeariza, celebrita. All right, what do we what do we got this week, Davy boy? Oh man, we got a bunch of them. Okay, so this meme is a. <laughs> This meme, I can't, your, your, uh, what's it called? Your, hold on, let me see if I can move this. Oh, I can, look at that. All right, so this meme is by Michael Lindquist, um, and it is a meme, it's a stock photo of a little boy being, uh, kind of held in the arms of his mother, uh, and they're kind of cowering in the corner of a room, and there's a, there's a bucket on the floor, and the... The, the the little boy has my face photoshopped on him from the you think I'm going to say no meme and the mother or older sister, I guess it's older sister probably, uh, has a monster demon mask face photoshopped on it. And the, the, the older sister is saying, I don't know, Dave, but I'm fucking terrified right now. Oh, wait, no, it's back. I read it backwards because someone doesn't understand how comics work. Come on, Michael Lindquist. The first thing is top left to bottom right. Let's do this. Um, the, the young boy me is saying, Hilsmer, what is that thing? And 
the monster older sister is saying, I don't know, Dave, but I'm fucking terrified right now. And next to the bucket are a bunch of Chiquita bananas. I'm gonna have to say a couple things. Number one, I don't understand this. I, I don't get it. Not in a bad way. It's hilarious, but I don't get the, I don't get it. It's because I don't know what bananas are. So I'm scared of bananas. Yeah. But what, why is Hillsmer here? What, what does Hillsmer have to do with it? Why? <laughs> What's your rating? What's your rating? Uh, and also everybody always does this, but. It's his name. His name is spelled H-I-L-L-S-M-E-R. Everybody only puts one L. It's two L's. Two L's. Also, Michael Lindquist, my guy, there are a lot of images of Hillsmer floating around, like in the group. Like Hillsmer's here. You could just like find his profile and steal the default photo. Yeah, you put like a you put like a demon mask. Yeah. We, we know what Hillsmer looks like. He has he has his own Facebook page. Uh, all right, what are you what are you what are you rating it? Although I love that idea that there are some listeners that don't know what Hillsmer looks like and they're just imagining something completely different in their mind. Uh, I'm gonna go I'm gonna go seven on this one. Yeah, I'm gonna go six and a half. Six and a half, man. I almost said six and a half. Now I'm kind of regretting it. This one is by uh, Ed Zachary, and it is the meme template of the guys from American Chopper arguing and, you know, things successively build into the younger son throwing a chair. All right. So the first one is the old guy with the handlebar mustache, and he's yelling, it's Andrew's game. And then the next one is the son yelling, and he's saying, he can't vote for himself. And then the next one is saying, I don't care. He wins. And then the chair throwing one where he goes, Mikay Miller should have won. And then the last one is the dad again with the handlebar mustache screaming, what's he going to do? Riot. I love this. I love this. Ed Zachary, solid job. I love the inclusion of Mikay Miller. Um, this is hilarious to me. Andrew, what do you, what do you rate it? Uh, I love it too. I think maybe he could have stuck the ending a little bit better with the final panel. Cause usually this is just a total escalation with, with every single panel. And the final one just doesn't necessarily, uh, resonate with that. It should, it should have been something like he throws the chair and he says Mikay Miller should have won. And then the final one is him saying like, I can't even, I can't even think of what it, what it would be, but I feel like, I feel like there's just something there that it should have escalated to something a little bit higher. Also, just as a, just for everybody, their information, this is, this one is in reference to a few weeks ago, Andrew's entry won the Pizza Pizza Paparitza Mimarita Celebritza. So this is, this is a meme referencing the fact that Andrew cheated and gave himself the uh, award. Hashtag stop, stop the Mimarita steal. Uh, wait, did you give it a, a rank? Did you give it a number? The final one should have been Mikay Milar never wins. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's what it should have I'm been. I'm gonna, I'm gonna just vote on what you said. I'm not gonna vote on what Ed put as the final one. I'm gonna vote on that. And I give that, this escalation with that, I give a Fellini. Oh yeah? Yeah, I, I, I give a, a Fellini as well, for sure. Same, same, same thing. Um. <laughs> oh my god. Well, let's, wait, let's not look at this one yet. Cause these, these all, these all have like, yeah, they, they all, they all, they all escalate from, they're all in context. Um, so just for quick context, uh, uh, friend of the show and friend of me, Mike Bedard, um, he posted a picture of a character from the movie Cru- Cruella and said that it looked like Dave. So that's, that's the context. And then off of that single post where a bunch of people were talking shit, A, about that person and B, about my physical appearance, (laughs) they started using that person and me in memes. So the next one, the first one that really took off was one by Andrew, which we are not (laughs) going to give 
We are not going to give him a win again because there will be rioting in the streets. But yeah, his- I mean, and that's the only reason, though. Like, I I could win every one of these if 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 it wouldn't cause rioting. Like, if I wasn't scared of if I wasn't scared of like French Revolution style like beheading in the streets, I could win every single one of these. I, that's not true. Bill Bixby's Oscar will beat you ten times out of ten times. I could I could trounce him with I, one. I, meme are, are you, is that a challenge? Is that a challenge? Back. Are you are we gonna have a a Papa Pricey uh, Bill Bixby's Oscar exhibition meme match? I t- I've told you this story before. I'll say it again. I I entered a contest in in elementary school. I created a tapestry of in a in an anti drug PSA contest. They announced the winners. There was just third, second, and first prize. They called the third prize. It wasn't me. They called the second prize. It wasn't me. I was I was starting to get a little deflated because I was like, oh, man, I f- I'm not going to win the first prize. So now I feel like I'm not going to win at all. They called the first prize. It wasn't me. I was like, fuck, I didn't win this. And then they said, we've decided to create a new placing of a grand prize because this one was so good. Andrew Price. And I won a grand prize that was invented on the spot to give to me because my entry was so far and above everybody else's. <laughs> All right. The ball's in your court, Bill Bixby's Oscar. Um, so the, the, the initial entry involving the Cruella actor, who I don't know their name, and various pictures of me is the Magneto meme from First Class where it's escalating, where he says, the first one he says, I want to see the real you, know the real you, and then the last one is perfection when he's talking to Mystique in the bedroom. So the first one is the picture of the guy from Cruella, and Michael Fassbender's Magneto is saying, I prefer the real Dave Baker. And then the next one is me from the thumbnail uh, of the cover of our podcast where I'm dressed as a boy detective looking into space holding a flashlight, and then it says, I said, the real Dave Baker. And then the next one, and final one, is me looking all crazy with the you think I'm going to say no meme image. And it then has Fassbender saying, perfection. Uh, I love this. Nine. (laughs) Yeah, I I feel like I should abstain from rating my own. I will say that this meme is a little bit of a imperfect uh, creation because I wanted to find I wanted to basically like alter the meme template and add a fourth thing where basically like I prefer the real Dave Baker. I said the real Dave Baker. And then it would show that you think I'm going to say no one. And then I wanted to add one where he goes like, no, I mean the real Dave Baker and then have a fourth one. But I couldn't think of the fourth one. And so I settled for them like this, the more this is like this is the vanilla version of the meme i wanted to like push it an extra uh notch and do something weird and i just couldn't think of the fourth thing god damn it uh so this one is the anakin and padme four uh meme where you know it's uh anakin makes a declarative statement and then uh padme repeats a question twice so the first one is uh, oh and it's by aaron dockery aaron dockery made this one um, Andrew is looking, it, it's, it's Hayden Christensen's Anakin Skywalker with Andrew's face photoshopped on top of it. And the text is, I have an idea for an episode. And then the next one is the image of that guy from fucking Cruella. And it said over, over Padme's face. And it says, you think I'm going to say no? And then close up on Andrew, Andrew's Anakin. And then close up on the you think I'm going to say no face of me over Padme's face. You think I'm going to say no, right? Uh, and uh, this is 
insane. This is insane. <laughs> it falls into one of those categories of like a meme that like doesn't really make sense. Like I don't really get it, but it's like so insane and just full of such bizarre iterations on inside jokes that it like elevates it to like being hilarious. Um, I got to go nine. This is so weird that I got to go nine. Uh, this is the Drake meme where he's <laughs> I don't saying... Even think, I don't even think I saw this one. Yeah. <laughs> this is the Drake meme where he's saying no and then yes. Uh, it's by Ed Zachary. And it says, when Davey Bakes answered the Craigslist ad for co-hosting a podcast. And the first me- Drake where he's saying no has Andrew's face photoshopped on it. And he's saying no to the guy from Cuella. And then he's saying yes to uh the you think i'm gonna say no meme image of me um (laughs) this is this is amazing this is so good i love this because i just love the idea that i put out a craigslist ad for this podcast and that's how we like met (laughs) you you answered the craigslist ad uh what what are you what are you going what you weighing in what what number are you thinking Uh, well so i'm gonna i think i'm gonna give this a a full rourke I'm going to say nine and a half, but I will add the little caveat that I feel like there's a missed opportunity in this meme template. And this is not necessarily a criticism of Ed's meme, more of a just a, a call to action that something should be done with this with this concept. There's a missed opportunity when we have this Drake meme where he's saying no and then yes to something that the you think I sh- you think I'm going to say no picture should be incorporated into that somehow. Like, you know, Drake is saying no and then he's saying yes and then he's saying you think I'm going to say no or something like that. Like, I feel like there's a missed opportunity here of not utilizing the you think I'm going to say no picture in a more mechanical way into the meme template. Mm-hmm. I agree. So you're going you're going Mickey Rourke? Yeah, I love this one. I'm going uh, nine. I'm going to go Elijah. Elijah? Okay. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Oh my God. Um, all right. This is by Stalwart Award losing longtime deep cuts hardcore listener, Mike Millar, aka Mike Miller, aka the only one Mike that's in our group that's last name is Miller that's not a Nazi because there is Mike S. Miller, who's not in our group, but is a Nazi, I think. Pretty sure that's I feel bad now throwing that mic under the bus, but there's a there's a comic book artist that's a fucking neo-Nazi, and he's got the same name as Mike Miller. That's such a weird introduction to somebody. <laughs> yeah, it's a really weird. I'm sorry, Mike. I'm sorry. <laughs> Let me do that again. Let me do that again. Introducing this guy. Now I'm just going to like meander about Nazis for 30 seconds. <laughs> this one this one is by Mike Miller, a.k.a. Mike Millar, a.k.a. Um, the, the one true the one true unholy. Mike Miller. The one Miller to rule them all. One Miller to rule them all. And it is a, like, I don't even know how to describe this. Is this like a... Let's just say for this meme, as we're as we're going to look at this meme, it's Miller time. It is Miller time. So I'm rooting for you, Mike. I hope this is the week that you win, man. <laughs> I love how you say that. And you and you keep saying it's a travesty when you're in full control of it happening. It's, but it's not up to me. It's objective. It's objective, <laughs> you know? Uh, so it's a, it's a triumvirate, uh, kind of almost like a, it's like a triumvirate symbol. It's like a triangle. And on each of the corners are photos of me doing the, you think I'm going to say no thing, the cover of the podcast, and then the Cruella guy in the bottom corner. (laughs) And it says the quantum Dave baby. And it has 
links lined uh, to the to the various versions. It's like an alignment chart. It's like a, an astral alignment chart where it's like, you think I'm going to say no is not equal to the podcast cover and podcast cover is not aligned, is not equal to Cruella. Cruella dude is not equal to you think I'm going to say no. And then they also have lines shooting off into the second, uh, the, the a circle in the middle that just says quantum Dave and uh, they all say is, so they're all equal to Quantum Dave. Yeah, so none of them, none of them equal each other, but they all equal the Quantum Dave baby. Yeah, or just the Quantum Dave baby. Yeah, but uh, there's no, there's no comma after Dave, so I'm assuming it's Dave baby. Yeah, so it's like you are the, you are like the Alpha and the Omega. These these three different astral entities are separate and unique, but they all are the Quantum Dave. I mean, what are you? What are your? I mean, I know what I'm going to say. What are you? What are, what are your? What's yours? Um. Uh. I I I know what I want to say, but I almost hesitate because it's based on such an inside joke thing that it's like it almost it's like. I almost kind of in the back of my mind feel like it has to be like knocked down because it doesn't stand on its own. Oh my God. What is that? There are so many that have not stood on their own that we've given high ratings. I'm not, I'm just saying there's something in the back of my mind that like almost wants to do that of like, Oh, this, this loses points because it's not a standalone thing and it requires prior knowledge of like 10 other memes. But without that little nagging thing in the back of my mind, I think I think I'll just say ten. Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a it's a ten for me as well. It's it's a ten. This is great. This is so funny. It's a ten. Fingers crossed you win it, Mike. Fingers crossed. We'll see. I feel bad for him. He's 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 done so much great work and just been rebuffed. And you're and you are the one that's rebuffed him. It's true. I am. Yeah. He's been rebaked. <laughs> he's been rebaked. Oh my god. <laughs> Dear God. <laughs> This is this is Ed Zachary pulling a full on uh oh my god this is I mean this is so good this is so good this is Ed Zachary pulling a Bill Bixby's Oscar this he's like he's like coming for that Bill Bixby's Oscar money this is so crazy so it's an image from that Shaft reboot remake movie where all where both Richard Roundtree and Samuel L. Jackson play shaft and there's a a new young actor playing a a third generation shaft and they're walking in slow motion towards camera and at the top of it it says tree the tree three a little bit tree house detectives the motion picture over one of the shafts is is chris hansen's face with sunglasses photoshopped on it and he's wearing an ashtar galactic command t-shirt where sporting a junior sleuths patch and carrying Chiquita bananas. <laughs> Over what I believe to be Richard Roundtree is is photoshopped Andrew Price's face and he's wearing a free Britney shirt and sporting a junior sleuths patch. I love how I love how I mean it makes sense to me that for most of these memes they use the pictures of us from the cover of the podcast and then it makes sense to me that they've also adopted using the you think I'm going to say no meme because that's just that's a meme in its of itself and it's been passed around but I love that for me if they don't use the podcast cover 
they use this one screenshot from a video as for my face and like it's clear that like they're just passing it around like one person got a screenshot from this video and used it and then everybody else started using that same picture and so it's just like it's just this one screenshot that one person took and everybody is using it as my face in every meme uh, and so the third person, instead of being me, is Anton LaVey with photoshopped glasses on. And he's wearing a shirt that's available in our spread shop at deepcutspod.com uh, that, sh- that says this shirt is kayfabe, also wearing a Junior Sluice patch. And then in the bottom right corner, there's a little baby wrapped in, in swaddling clothes that says 10 pizzas, baby bakes. And then it's like a pull quote from the credit from the great critic, baby bakes. Yes. Uh, I don't actually get to be in the movie. I'm just <laughs> the critic watching the movie. Um, and you, then you give, you, you give a review of a movie about your life where Anton LaVey plays you? I guess. Or Chris Hansen, one of the two. Um, so it says D.A. Price as the black preacher, Chris Hansen as himself, and Anton Sazandor as Satan Man. Staten Man. Which, I, the thing I like about Ed Zachary's memes is, like, he takes existing inside jokes, but, like, he changes them in some way. Like, he doesn't, like, the, when he references an inside joke, he doesn't quote it exactly. He presents like a weird, slightly distorted version of it. Because he's referencing in the Anton LaVey episode that Anton LaVey is called the Black Pope. And I said that it sounded like an exploitation film and not a spooky satanic thing. But he's he said he's put it as Black Preacher. And then there was also the bit in the Anton LaVey episode about the Church of Staten Island, which is like a church with a that takes place on a ferry where they just watch Sopranos all day. But he's he's at he's made it as Staten Man. I love it. Ten. Yeah, it's ten. Fucking full on ten. Full ten. All right. This one also criminally underrated Mike Millar. Mike Millar, Mike, aka Mike Miller, aka uh, the guy that's separate from the Nazi that's also named Mike Miller. Um, so it's the unfaithful boyfriend meme where there's a person walking in the foreground and the boyfriend and a girlfriend walking in the background and the boyfriend is like, ooh, at the girl and his, the, his current romantic partner is like, what? Okay, so the boyfriend says Andrew and Dave. The disgruntled girlfriend says normal podcast stuff. The girl walking in the foreground out of focus, the unattainable romantic partner that you're screwing over your current romantic partner lusting after says increasingly self-referential, esoteric and obtuse and borderline insane bullshit. Yeah, so he's just he's just he summed up the trajectory of the show. He summed up why we'll just slowly lose followers and, until it's just us and five people who make memes. I mean, it's obviously not as insane as some of these other entries that we've talked about, but it's just so it's just so true. It's just it just rings so true. It has such a pure essence. I don't know, man. I, we've, we've given away too many tens already. I mean, I'm giving it a 10. I don't care, but it's a quiet 10. It's like a, it's like that movie that you see and you're like, oh yeah, that was fine. And then like six months later, you're still thinking about and you're like, fuck, that movie was great. And then it becomes your favorite movie. And then you tell people it's your favorite movie at parties. And they're like, really that movie? And then you have to get into like a 15 minute discussion of why it's so great. Like this is, this, this cuts to the core of everything we've done. How about this? I'm going to give it a 10, 10, just full, full air J, 10, 10. (laughs) 
All right. Okay. It's it's not twenty. It's just two tens. Wow. That's that's more than a ten though. That's two tens. But it's not twenty. It's not add it's not adding the two tens. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's two tens. It's ten it's ten ten. All right. All right. Mike Miller coming in strong this week with two contenders. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. Uh which is a coincidence. We we have not purposely ended the two weeks in a row on a Bill Bixby's Oscar meme. That's just literally how it shook out in me opening up the tabs on my browser. Oh my god. All right, so this one is Oh my god. This is uh it's a fake movie poster for a shitty action movie from the 80s based off of our podcast. The main image is a guy wearing a giant Chiquita banana face mask holding a an AK47 directly at the camera and wearing a Hawaiian t-shirt. The title says Bacon and Legs in Chiquita Kill 3, a bunch of bodies. Uh and Andrew and I's heads floating in space on the um on the title card and it says hey dave baker drop the drop drop that beef and cheddar and then there's an arby's logo a chiquita logo arnold schwarzenegger with a bazooka and another guy with a bazooka that i don't recognize um this is great i mean bill bill's biggest oscar is just he's just an outsider artist savant yeah like this is just it's amazing we 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 should do like we should we should put on an art gallery of these they're so good like these they're so much better than they have any right to be um a 10 i have to give this a 10 another 10 i have to look at this thing it's so good we're giving out too many 10s uh yeah i mean yeah 10 it's gotta be a 10 all right now we have to decide the winner yeah the question is yeah the question is what what's the winner because there's like four tens we've got we've got this one from bill bixby's oscar we've got the previous one from mike miller we've got the one from ed zachary the movie poster and we've got the other one from mike miller the triangle yeah um i think the quiet 10 and the one that you gave two tens to is out of the running because it is just slightly uh it's a slightly softer note it doesn't have the the roaring air guitar that i think you need to win um so for me it's one of those three um do you have a strong opinion on which one those of those three either the ed zachary three shafts one for the fake movie poster of treehouse detectives bacon and legs fake movie poster of chiquita kill a bunch of bodies or Mike Miller's triangle of power Dave consciousness thing. I mean, I love I love uh the Chiquita Kill 3 poster and like I said like this is like these are like works of art that could go up in a gallery. But in terms of just as a meme, I kind of feel like I am more inclined to lean towards Ed's because I love just all of the detail in it. Just the fact that they all are wearing these shirts that are just these uh, these completely random references and inside jokes. It's like you have one of them is wearing our merch. One of us is wearing the free Britney hashtag one of us is wearing an Ashtar Galactic Command. Just all the detail, you know, the fact that it's Chris Hansen and Anton LaVey, the weird tweaks to the inside jokes where they're just like, they're inside jokes, but like slightly changed to not be recognizable. I think I think I prefer the detail in Ed's entry for this week. Yeah, I, in looking at it now, I think of these three, the top two are definitely the Treehouse Detectives and Chiquita Kill 3. Sorry, Mike. Um, <laughs> Mike Miller, again, without the victory. Um, 
And tr- all right, so you're officially voting for Treehouse Detectives? Are we sneaking in a second annual at the Mountains of August Madness on the last day that it could possibly happen? <laughs> Won't this come out later? Well, at the time of recording. So I guess when it comes out, it'll be at the Mountains of September Madness. I mean, I'm I'm game to do a second annual uh, Treehouse Detectives v. Dave uh, Triumvirate Consciousness v. Uh, Chiquita Kill. I'm I'm game. You heard it here, folks. This Wednesday, 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 at your local Deep Cuts podcast Facebook group, the second annual Pizza Pizza Paparitza Mimaritza Celebritza at the Mountains of September Madness final showdown. Will you vote for Ed Zachary's Treehouse Detectives meme, Bill Bixby's Oscars Chiquita Kill 3 meme, or Mike Miller's Triumvirate The Quantum Dave meme? Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content. The incidental music for this episode was created by D. Catalano, whose music can be found at wekeepoddhours.bandcamp.com. And the Dead Boy Detectives.